In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of the hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month, in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets." Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, they would not hear. So they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Already 1240. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, good morning. You guys good? That extra one hour, one hour, one hour extra sleep, right? It should help, but uh, I, I was told earlier this morning that for parents with young children, actually worse because the kids wake up earlier <laughs> and uh, the parents therefore suffer. But uh, all right, we're going to turn our attention to God's word in a bit, but I wanted to welcome uh, a few newcomers. Uh, here for the first time. Uh, Faith Kim is joining us from Lorton. Faith, where are you sitting? Faith is in the back over there. Let's give Faith a warm welcome. All right. I also met uh, Julie, I think it was Julie Lee. I'm sorry, Julie Lee. She's sitting right over there. Let's give Julie a warm welcome. Um, I already forgot their names. I didn't receive a card from them yet, but um, Joseph and Simeon's friends are with us. They're sitting on the middle over there. You can raise your hand for us. Let's give them a warm welcome. All right. Apologies, a little feedback here. All right, so uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Zechariah, uh, and I hope it's been good for you. It's been good for me to uh, unpack portions of Scripture that I really never studied in depth, and so the Lord has been ministering to me. I hope he's been ministering to you through these uh, messages. Uh, now, over the past several weeks, we covered the eight visions that Zechariah was called to share with God's people in order to uh, offer them comfort and hope as they were uh, readjusting to life in Jerusalem. They had spent about 70 years in exile, so it was a very difficult time for them. And we look at our passage today. Okay, one thing you need to know right off the bat is that two years have passed uh, since Zechariah shared those eight visions, and apparently God's people responded to those visions fairly well uh, because they've been making good progress in rebuilding God's temple and it'll take another two years or so for the building project to be fully completed. But with the completion of the new temple in sight, uh, there were some people who were wondering if 
certain practices of fasting and mourning were still necessary. Uh, you know, we're told that there was a delegation from Bethel uh, who traveled to Jerusalem, and they wanted an answer to this basic question. And the question was, should we weep and abstain uh, in the fifth month as we have done so for many years? In other words, should we continue to fast and mourn on the designated fifth month as you've been doing for so many years since the destruction of our, our temple and our city? To really appreciate what's happening here, you need to understand a little bit uh, of Old Testament uh, fasting, okay? Let me share just a bit with you. The Old Testament actually only had one required fast, and that fast was to take place on the Day of Atonement. That was the only requirement in terms of fasting uh, that was expected uh, from the Jewish people. But, see, after their holy city fell, and after their holy temple was destroyed by Babylon, a number of other fasts were established as part of Jewish custom. Uh, here's what I learned through my reading this past week. Uh, let me share this one paragraph with you, okay? One commentator writes, the exilic Jews, or in other words, the, the Jews in exile, the exilic Jews observed four additional major fasts associated with the events of Jerusalem's fall. Okay, and let me, let me uh, point them out. Number one, on the ninth day of the fourth month, they mourned the breaching of the city's wall, that's number one. Number two, on the eighth, 18th day of the fifth month, they fasted for the burning of the city and the temple. Number three, on the third day of the seventh month, they remembered the murder of Gedaliah, the governor. And finally, on the 10th day of the 10th month, as a fourth fast, they fasted to recall the day Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, set up his siege around the city. Okay? Uh, so they had four additional fasts on top of the required fast that they had that, that they'd done the Day of Atonement. But see, again, since the temple was going to be completed soon, it made sense for them to ask, should we continue to mourn and fast over the old temple, or even if the new temple is almost done? I don't think it's a bad question. I think it's a very good question. Um, I think anyone would have had sort of the same curiosity, most of us would have responded with, hey, that, that's fair, you know, uh, of course you're wondering that, but we look at our passage today, again, and we see that God's response is different. I believe because he's God, or he's able to see through the heart of every man, and, and so he responds not with words of praise or commendation, not, okay, good question, you know, uh, I, I appreciate your curiosity, he doesn't respond that way. Rather, he responds with a word of rebuke and warning. So this is somewhat surprising, right? And look, we're not God, so we can never presume to exactly know one's motive for fasting and, and speak with such authority as God does here. But God basically questions their motives for fasting and tells them that their fasting was not done for the right reasons. Right? He says, essentially, that their fasting was not done for him. It was done for them. Right? It was self-serving. What do you think that a, a fast that is self-serving would look like? I mean, what is the most common way fasting could be done selfishly? Right? I'm sure uh, you can relate to my struggle. I try to fast at least once a year. Okay? Uh, 
usually during, you know, Easter, Good Friday week. Uh, it's very difficult. And so I love food. <laughs> so when, I, when I'm fasting from food, there's a temptation that I experience. It's like when I'm fast, I want to sort of let it be known that I'm fasting. <sighs> you know, I, I try to look, you know, man, I, I'm really, I'm having hunger pains. And, you know, I, I wait for my wife to ask me, you know, aren't you going to eat? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not eating today. Right? Why? Because I'm fasting, right? There's that urge inside of me. And I'm, I'm not saying that I do that every time, but there's this temptation that arises, right? I'm sure you can relate. Right? Whenever I do a good thing, whether it's fasting or whatever, whether, whenever I do a good thing, I am tempted to let it be known to others because I like, I like human applause like most of us do. And so that, that's what Jesus actually addresses in uh, his sermon on the, on the mount in Matthew chapter six. Says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Yeah? Why, why do you look that way? Oh, because I'm fasting, you know, because I'm doing a good thing, because I'm godly. How about you? Why aren't you fasting, right? Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But see, Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, don't look all gloomy and glum. Don't look depressed. Look good, look clean, look energized, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father in secret will reward you is the instruction given to us through Jesus. Now, in our passage today, God specifically responds to the question of fasting, but See, the, the self-serving attitude and the, the self-centered posture people have toward God can be applied to all areas of life and faith. Could they not? Which is why I didn't want to make this message simply about fasting. And that, that's why the title is, is not the heart of true fasting. Rather, it's the heart of true worship. Okay? Because we want to take this principle and, and seek to apply it in all areas of life more broadly. So what, what is true worship, okay? Simply put, we can say that true worship is centered upon God, okay? And, and maybe we can stop the sermon there, but no. I mean, in, in order for us to better understand what true worship looks like, I, I thought it would be helpful to draw a clear contrast between what a true-centered worship is versus what a self-serving and essentially a man-centered version of worship is. Okay? And I think that'll help you more. So let's start with a God-centered worship. What, what is that? A God-centered worship is when you start with who? God, right? You start with God, and you seek to understand God's purpose and God's agenda for you in life. And you're interested primarily in asking the question, how does God want me to fit into his storyline or into his agenda, into his purpose, okay? You, you check with God first. God defines reality, your reality. And so you're, you're, you're asking, how can I fit into your story, God? In contrast, what a self-serving and man-centered approach looks like, you begin with not God, but yourself. And, and your main goal is to accomplish your purpose, and your agenda in this life because you're the king of your life, not God, right? You've usurped his authority. 
right, you're, you, little you, you're sitting on your little throne and you're trying to act like king. And this is how most people live and think because this is how our sinful hearts love to operate. And unfortunately, the world in which we live continually reinforces this way of thinking as well. Right? If it feels good, then you just do it is the message that bombards us every day, every week. Have it your way, right? The same message, right? A different, different, I guess, language, but it's the same content, right? Essentially, the same message is given to us. Every time I walk into a kava or a meza, right, two of my probably favorite health foods, uh, Chipotle is okay. Right? Chipotle is one tier down, okay? But every time I walk in, guess what? I'm given the freedom to choose whatever I want in my bowl, right? I don't, I don't ask them, can you curate a bowl for me? Although I noticed that that's being offered too these days, right? But, you know, back when I was younger, you walk into a store and you would just say, you know, can I have this on the menu? And then they would basically make a sandwich for you and you can't pick and choose. They just give you a sandwich and you, hey, you eat it. This is a sandwich we, we made, right? But nowadays, you, get, you have all the freedom to choose, Right? I don't want this, I don't want this, I want this. Can you give me more of this? Yeah, give me more of this, right? And you get all the freedom. That, that's sort of the, the culture we live in. So that kind of reinforces this mindset that I can do whatever I want in this life. And the church is unfortunately affected by this kind of mindset as well. You got me and you got my agenda, my purpose. And instead of you asking God, how can I fit into your, your story? You're, at, you're saying to God, God, this is my, my agenda here. And I want to kind of squeeze you in to this little agenda I have. And so I'm going to use you as a pawn, as a tool to get to what I want to accomplish in this life. Like a little Pokemon, right? You're my toy. I'm going to use you to fulfill my purposes. And that's, that's how most people tend to live. I've heard someone put it this way. If you're not going to trust in God, then you will end up inevitably using God for your own self-serving purposes. Isn't that true? I've been a pastor for quite a while now, uh, <clears throat> but I really only served in two or three churches. The one church was uh, when I was an intern. Uh, that was short-lived. So let's say, let's say okay, three churches in total. Uh, but the church I served the longest in Philly was uh, a church that, asked me to fulfill the role of an education pastor for a few years. So I was doing youth ministry there. I was doing uh, EM pastoring there a little bit. And then I, I was also asked to do education pastoring. That meant I had to survey all different kinds of children's curriculum because my job partly was to make sure that the curriculum from nursery, toddler, children, and youth were all coherent. There wasn't a hodgepodge of competing theologies, but it was all sort of streamlined and and reformed and sound biblically, and so that was my part of my job. And so I had to look at different curriculum. I, I, I came upon this one lesson from Genesis, and, and basically it was in dialogue form because it was for children, and trying to teach kids, like, why do you think God created you? Why, do, why did God create us, right? And then uh, the answer ended up boiling down to, well, God created us because God was fill in the blank. Lonely. God was lonely. Poor little God. He was lonely. And so he had to create us. So I had to take that sheet and crumble it up and throw it in the trash can. Piece of trash, right? The trashy curriculum. <laughs> Never going to use that company, right? 
You hear this a lot in youth ministry, also like uh, in youth curriculum. Uh, do you know why God saves you? Right? God saved you because you were worthy. You are worthy to be saved, right? <laughs> God, God sent his son to die for you because you were worth it. He got a good deal for you, essentially. Right? That may sound good to you. Like, <laughs> I bet some of you are like, what? what's wrong with that? That means you've been tainted by a man-centered theology, brothers and sisters, if you're not bothered by that. He saved you because you were worthy? No. The most egregious offense that I've encountered was when I was at a Philly youth rally, and I, I, I enjoy when youth gather and they you know, praise their hearts out to the Lord. I, I wish more that would happen in our day. I'm not against you know, godly emotions being expressed in worship. I, I wish our worship was actually more emotional, you know, to be honest. Although I'm not a hand-raising guy, you know, I don't all, all of a sudden pretend to be a hand-raising guy, okay? But I don't mind if you did. I, I love when Pastor Andrew does this, okay? Uh, but I was at this Philly Youth Rally, and, you know, as most of you probably know, that it gets, it gets kind of emotional. But there's a danger to that, too. There's a danger in that leaders can manipulate teenagers' emotions because they're so malleable, they're so impressionable, and this is what happened uh, toward the end of the rally. And so it actually started pretty well. It started actually very well. I was actually blessed for the most... Most part, but there was this one song that all of you probably know, uh, titled There Is None Like You, okay? There is none like you, that song, right? Beautiful song, it's meant to express the what? Incomparable, matchless glory, honor of the Lord, right? No one else can touch my heart like you do. And kids were like raising their hands, they're singing their hearts out, some were crying. I can search for all eternity long and find there is none. La Beautiful song. I was like so happy I was there. I brought, you know, took my youth kids and they were having a good time praising, praising God. But then all of a sudden the worship leader switched things on us uh, foolishly. And he said, hey guys, I want you to know how much God loves you. You know, it was all dimmed, you know. <laughs> there were no falling machines, by the way. It was so dimmed. Um, but it was a kind of an emotional sort of environment, and so he said, I want to, I want to show you how, how much God loves you, and, and I want you to know this is a song that God is singing to you personally, right? This is the song for you. This is God's love song for you. There is none like, same words, song to the kids, you. You, 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 you take that, that song that's meant to express the incomparable greatness of God, and you're turning it and making making the, the kids, the teenagers, the object of worship. I was like, this is, what is going on here? What is happening here? Right, I'm looking around, kids are bawling more. They're even, they're even more touched, they're more moving. Oh my goodness, right, what a disaster. Why am I here? <laughs> uh, not, not why, I was, I was getting angry actually. I was getting, I was like, is this guy for real? Right. I didn't know the guy too well, but I, I know him well enough. I emailed him afterwards. I said, that was a mistake, brother, right? Uh, but then he responded back saying, I checked with my consultant. He had a, I guess, a consultant, a theological consultant, basically a professor that was well-known. And I was like, okay, man, uh, I still think you made a mistake and it should never be done. I mean, and I basically, I gave him a, a, a rationale for it, but he didn't buy it. He, he was basically doubling down on that. And I was like, okay, well, this is, I guess, the state of the church. This is what we're living, this kind of culture we're living in now, elevating people making them into sort of like godlike status. 
Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall, thought of me. I love that song, by the way, until the very end. Right? You got to know this song? Above all, it was very popular. It was the nearly perfect song until they decided to conclude it with, you took the fall and thought of me above all. It doesn't work, okay? You take a perfectly good song and you, you totally ruin it at the very end by, again, elevating man. The whole, the entire, 90% of the song is elevating God, that he's above all things, and all of a sudden at the end, he's like, you know, he thinks of us above all. No, it doesn't work. It's unbiblical. See, if your mind becomes shaped by these self-serving and self aggrandizing patterns of thoughts long enough, you'll find yourself saying some very foolish things, such as, why is it wrong for me to do anything as long as it's not harming anybody, right? That's very, that's very self-serving and a selfish thought, a pattern of thought, as if it doesn't matter what God thinks about what you do, as long as you don't harm, harm others on the outside. Why should I attend church when there's not much in it for me? Right? Brothers and sisters, I don't, I don't know of any serious Christian leader who believes that the Christian church in America is a healthy and thriving church in our cultural moment. Here's one uh, article that was written by Trevin Wax. <clears throat> he, he cites a, a research piece from Barna. Barna's a research group, and he writes, so let, me, let me share just a bit of what, he's, what he wrote there. Research from Barna that, that shows, there's a, there's a research from Barna that shows that a large percentage of church-going Christians say that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in this life. Guess what percentage in that study? 66%. And he says, that percentage is lower than what most Americans, so I guess the American population, 84% believe that. So he's saying, okay, it's still lower. It's lower than what the American population believe, but still, for Christians, that's really, it's really high for Christians who supposed to believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's really high. And then he, he, uh, he lists three sort of examples of why people might come to church, okay? I want you to use this as a, as a test for yourselves, right? See, see, see where you land uh, in this in these examples, okay? <clears throat> See if you can identify with any one of these. Number one, imagine a man, or right, sorry, imagine a woman standing during worship singing to the Lord, hopeful and anxious to fulfill her purpose as someone made in God's image and redeemed by Jesus's sacrifice. Her frame of reference is biblical. God is at the center, right? That's nothing wrong with there. Uh, that first example, right? We should all be able to say, this is perfectly fine reason to worship. Second, next to her, stands a man who sees this worship service as helping him fulfill his own personal mission, right? To enjoy himself as much as possible in this life by being the best version of himself he can be, right? Probably took a page from Joel Osteen. And his frame of reference is moralistic, okay? So the accent is on this moralistic life and trying to do, live a good life and be happy, right? Thirdly, beside them is a teenage girl 
who sees this worship service as absolving her of negative feelings and pointing her toward a higher calling. And her frame of reference is therapeutic. So everyone has baggage, right? Everything ha everyone has some emotional issues. And so in her case, she, she comes to church because it's a therapeutic experience for her. It's like walking through you know, a, a nice path through the woods or forest with, with the you know, colorful leaves. It's therapeutic. Or for guys, maybe it's like you know, hitting some golf balls in the range or walking on, on the golf course and, and doing 18 holes with your buddies. It's therapeutic. Is that what church is for you? Is it just therapeutic? I'm not saying that you can't experience emotional healing at church, but that cannot be your primary reason why you come and worship. So brothers, sisters, why do you come to worship the Lord? Do you primarily come because God is worthy and you're committed to do whatever it takes to acknowledge his place in your life? Or do you primarily come to meet your own emotional needs? And so that when you feel inconvenienced on any given morning, right, you think that that gives you license to just kind of neglect worship because it's all about you anyway. Is that how you think? I wanted to share a, a brief video clip. Uh, it's a Q&A where R.C. Sproul is on the panel. R.C. Sproul, by the way, he passed away many years ago, but he's one of my spiritual heroes. And I just want to, going to give you a taste of what, what a difference what the difference is between a God-centered mind versus more of a, a man-centered sort of culture that we're living in, okay? So let's uh, take, give us a look. If God is slow to anger and patient, excuse me, since God is slow to anger, <laughs> we're always learning. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Time out. <laughs> Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. Yeah, it's a little, I think little, we little did. Nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. I was thinking maybe in our uh, podcast, we should have a what's wrong with you people segment. <laughs> uh, 
That, that may sound a bit harsh for some of you. It's, what's wrong with you? I mean, but R.C. Sproul there, he intended to speak with a prophetic voice because he sensed that our culture was moving more and more in the direction of what's been called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Okay, like the example I offered earlier, you, had, you got this accent on moralism, moralistic living, and then you had the accent on therapeutic. I, I just come to church because I worship God because he makes me feel good, right? It's therapy for me. And then deism, what's deism? You guys know what deism is? Deism is when you have a view of God that is aloof. He, he is not involved in, in what you do daily. He doesn't really care, right? He is an impersonal God, and so you can kind of shape your reality any way you want to. Right? He's, like, he's, he's someone who's kind of, he spins the world like a top, and he kind of, he's hands off. So whatever, you know, happens, happens sort of thing. Uh, he sets the world in motion. That's deism in a nutshell. And so people have argued that the way American Christians are is that they essentially adopt this spirituality right, that is moralistic, therapeutic, deism. And so the response is, what is wrong with you guys? <laughs> what, is, what is happening? And which perspective, honestly, do you think is more God-honoring? Right? To have a God-centered understanding or to be man-centered and, and self-serving in the way you live out your, your life? Well, I mean, it's obvious. The answer should be obvious. But again, I want you to examine your hearts this morning. You know, the people of God during Zechariah's day became confused as well, which is why God rebuked them and called them to reprioritize their faith, right? Your fasting and your worship is not about me, right? Your fasting and worship is are there for yourselves. And when, when we make worship about us and we turn into a self-serving therapeutic weekly event, then guess what? It arouses God's anger as we see in this passage. You know, God, he says this periodically to his people since the Old Testament times. Whenever, whenever, uh, his people turn worship into self-therapy and, and self-serving uh, events. He says, I hate and I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Right? That one's from Amos chapter five, but there are other passages that speak essentially the same language. I do not delight in your worship right? if, if that is the way you approach me. Some of you are rather new to the faith. Some of you may not yet be Christians. And so you may be confused as to why God cares so much about receiving worship from us. You may view him like as a tyrant or an egotistical maniac, perhaps. Why does he want, why does he want us to worship him so much? Why does he care whether we worship this way or that way? It might seem strange to you. So I want to clarify one thing. You know, God does not call us to worship him because he is needy. He is not a needy being. In Acts chapter 17, it says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands 
as though he needed anything. He does not need anything. He is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. And he doesn't need us in heaven either. Which reminds me of another song I'm not going to mention. Brother, sisters, he calls us to worship him because that is the purpose for which we were created. And when we go against God's purpose in anything, there are consequences that will follow. The way the Bible puts it is that the wages of sin is death. In other words, we will face God's justice whenever we commit an offense against him. That's like a law that cannot move. So, so if, if your mind is raising the objection, why, why can't God just chill out though? Right? Why, why does he have to punish sin? You don't understand who God is, if that's your reasoning. You misunderstand God's nature. Right? You're thinking more like a deist, that God is some impersonal force. He's not. He's a personal being with a real character, with real attributes such as holiness, justice, righteousness, etc., Those attributes shape who he is, and he cannot compromise that, as we can't compromise our character. Right? There's a parallel there. Right? Just as you cannot defy the laws of gravity because they're fixed and immovable, you cannot defy God's character and the laws of God's justice because they too are fixed and immovable. And so that's why whenever God rebukes us or warns us what our sin can do to us, the proper response is not to accuse him of being an egotistical cosmic maniac as some people do. Rather, it's to recognize that his rebuke and his warning, they're expressions of love and grace towards sinners who are confused of reality. God is telling us to wake up. This is reality. My justice is real. The best way for you to live is to worship me, to recognize me as your God. Before God's people were conquered by Babylon and sent into exile, God warned them, as he always warns his people, of what would happen if they continued in their sin but unfortunately, it says that they did not listen. Verse 11, they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through his prophets. Therefore, greater anger or great anger came from the Lord. Right, this, this principle still applies to us today, brothers and sisters. If we persist in our sin, in our rebellion, and if we continue down the path of living self-serving, self-righteous, self-centered, selfish lives, then this will be our lot as well. So God is speaking to all of us today, calling us not to repeat the sins of former Israel, please do not allow your hearts to become diamond hard. You got, you got to recognize what that is, what that feels like. You got you to know how that happens, first of all. How does that happen? How, how does your heart become 
so hardened that God looks upon and says, your heart is diamond hard. Well, it happens, brothers and sisters, if you repeatedly ignore God's word and you choose to walk in rebellion. It's like you may feel guilty when you sin the first time against God, right? And that guilt is meant to be a good thing to draw you back to the Lord, but you ignore that, right? And you, you sin again. And the second time is easier. The third time is even easier. And by the seventh and eighth and ninth time, your heart becomes completely numb. Your conscience becomes seared and you can't feel anything toward God. You don't even recognize what sin is anymore. That's what a hardened heart is. Cold. Can't feel anything. No affection for God or his people. That's a dangerous place to be. And if, if that resonates with you today, if, if you know that you're in that dangerous place, I ask that you would prostrate your hearts before God and ask him to offer you mercy. If your heart has been far from God, I ask you, please, swallow your pride and start listening. Just start listening one more. Just start listening once again. Start listening to God's word. Right? Don't, don't brush, don't block your ears, but listen to God's word and ask God to work his grace in your heart through his spirit. Then your heart will slowly begin to melt and become soft and receptive once again. And you'll, you'll know when your heart becomes soft because instead of viewing God as a cruel tyrant, you'll begin to see him as your wise and gracious heavenly father. And you'll begin to have affections for him once again. And instead of seeing Jesus as your equal, I really don't like it when guys walk around saying stuff like, oh, Jesus is my homeboy, man. You know, we're tight. I can immediately tell that you have no idea who Jesus is. Treating him like as your equal like that, you have no clue. Instead of seeing Jesus as your equal, who always says yes to everything you say and do, who offers no pushback because he's your homeboy, right? He's like your little, little lackey, your little pawn, little sidekick. Instead of that, you'll see him as your loving savior, right? Who rescued you from your sin. And you'll also begin to see him as your Lord. And you'll, you'll remove yourself off your little throne and you'll place Jesus on his rightful throne. And you'll submit to his authority once again. And you'll know the joy and beauty in living under that authority. And lastly, instead of seeing the Holy Spirit as some impersonal force that simply exists to empower you so you can fulfill your own personal dreams, no matter how carnal they may be, you'll begin to view the Holy Spirit as God himself taking residence in your life so that you can be empowered to actually die to yourself and live in obedience to God's will. And your, your lives will completely become reoriented. So God, God is honored. I'm gonna offer you some other resources so that you can discuss it during your small groups if you're meeting this week. Continue to reflect upon how we can sort of move away from more of a self-serving, self-centered 
posture toward a God-honoring and God-centered and Christ-exalting way of life. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we are deeply humbled by your word this morning. We acknowledge that we are not immune to the sin of pride and self-righteousness. We know how religion, even the Christian faith, how it can be used for self-serving purposes. Many of us actually grew up observing people abuse the Christian faith, and we know uh, many who have abandoned their faith altogether because of the hypocrisy that they have witnessed in the church. And it's because we have seen such damage, we ask for your grace to keep our faith genuine and their hearts centered upon you. We want to love you, and we want to love our neighbors well, even when life is hard for us. So when we become tempted and when our hearts begin to stray, may you never fail to grab hold of our hearts and bring us back to you again and again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So all stand together, give praise to God.